chapter 6 this morning. Galatians chapter 6. I don't know about you guys, but uh, many times when I read the Bible, I read a lot of uh, doctrine. I read a lot of, um, it seems like, um, philosophical information. When Paul is teaching, many times he gets into the deep crags and crevices and into ideological thinking about the Lord. And because of that, I'm a guy. I like to do stuff. So I like instruction like, this means you need to do this. And so Paul knows that, and he's writing to this Galatian church, and he's writing to them to correct them, because they have some problems, and their biggest problem is that they've allowed people who are legalistic to come in and teach them another way to be saved, and they haven't even realized it. They've had this group of people that have come in and said, yes, you are saved by grace through faith, but you also need to make sure that you add um, heavenly brownie points to your salvation. If you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you're really not saved until you do those things. But that's a system of works. That's man trying to climb his way up the ladder to appease God, to make God happy by his actions. And if you ever try to please the Lord by your outward actions, you're just going to end up failing because we don't measure up. We can't please the Lord by our actions. The best we can do is what the Bible says in Isaiah is filthy rags. That's the best we can do in the eyes of the Lord if we try to please him on our own merit. And so Paul has spent the primary, primary amount of this book basically uh, debunking this theory that you can please God by doing X, Y, and Z. He talks about circumcision. Maybe we wouldn't talk about circumcision. We would talk about something more like being baptized a certain way or going to a certain church or being a part of a certain group. And, and God says, none of that stuff matters to me. What matters to me is what's going on inside of your heart. And if it's idolatry, if it's even religious idolatry, where you're trying to show that you're better than someone spiritually, God's not impressed. And so Paul was very hard-handed with them. But he gets to Galatians chapter 5 and 6, and he gives them some ways to live out this freedom that we've been given, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. His salvation has set us free from the law. We no longer have to keep a law of do's and don'ts, but now he's filled us with his Holy Spirit and given us the desire that comes from within that wants to please him in every way. No longer because we have to in order to live, but now because we get to. And I don't know about you guys, but when I have to do something, I don't want to. But when I get to, it frees me up to make a choice, and there's all of a sudden this desire to do it. For me, it's Saturday mornings, getting up early. I hate getting up early for work because I have to, or I feel like I have to. I got to get up, I got to make the schedule, I got to get on time to work, and all those things. But on Saturday morning, I don't have to get up early, but there are things that I would like to get done. And so I want to get up early because it's my day. I have the freedom to say, I'm going to sleep in or I'm going to get up early. Now, lots of people, and there are days where I'm like this, are, hey, this is my day. I'm going to sleep in because I don't get to the rest of the week. But for me, Saturday morning, if I can get up early and I wasn't up super late the night before, I'm up. I want to drink that cup of coffee before there's any noise going on. I want to spend some time with the Lord that I don't have to make short because I got to get out the door. 
And then I also got little chores I'd like to do around the house, little honeydews. Most of my list is actually my list. Kelly's really easy on me. But my point is, is that when we get to do something versus having to do something, man, it's freeing. It's enjoyable. It's like when you have to work on your car because it's broken down versus when you have to work on your car because you want to do something neat to it. You know, there's, there, it's a whole different atmosphere. And so in the same way, Paul is giving them some instructions on how to use this freedom. We need to be instructed on how to use freedom. For example, if you give a 16-year-old a license and there's no instruction involved with it, there's going to be some problems because he's going to take that freedom, that responsibility, and he's probably going to use it wrong and people could get hurt, right? So if we use our freedoms as Christian believers in the wrong way, people can get hurt. And that includes us individually as ourselves. We can hurt ourselves by using our liberty as a license to sin. We can, use, we can hurt ourselves by using our freedom as a license to do anything that's outside of the will of God, going, well, God's going to forgive me. Yes, he will, but there are consequences for sin. And so Paul instructs them, and in the last chapter we studied in chapter 5, in verse 13, he writes this. He says, You, brethren, have been called to liberty or to freedom. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity to live in the flesh, to sin. Don't use your freedom to, to, to sin. And so he says that, and then he goes on to say, For all the law is full... Excuse me. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, he says, in, instead, through love, serve one another. So you can either serve yourself and your fleshly desires, or you can serve one another. For all the law, he says, is fulfilled in one word, even in this, and he quotes Jesus, who says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in contrast, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You'll destroy one another. The church was meant to be a group of people that have one similar hope. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of other things in common, but we have a similar hope in Jesus Christ for our salvation, for delivering us from the wrath that is to come, that we will have the hope that we'll be with him for eternity. And so as we live for this hope, and as we encourage one another until that day comes, as the day approaches, we are to build one another up, to strengthen one another, because everything in this life will try to cause us to look away from the object of our faith, to look away from Jesus. When Peter stood out, he stepped out of the boat onto the water, and Jesus was standing on the water, Peter was the only one willing to step out of the boat onto the water, right? And when he got on the water, as he focused on Jesus, what did he do? He walked on water. Anybody in here done that? But what is he known for in that instance? Is he known for walking, or is he known for slipping and sinking? He's known for slipping and sinking. But I don't know anyone else that has ever walked on water except Jesus. So that's pretty great, right? So, so what do we remember? We remember the bad stuff. But what did Peter do? He walked on water. As he looked at the Lord's face, he kept going. But as he looked away and he was distracted by all the things that were causing him to fear, the waves, the wind, all the things that would cause us to fear, he sunk. 
So as we get together each week, God's given us an opportunity to remind each other about the face of Jesus and all that he has done and all that he is doing, to notice in other people, this is what Jesus has been doing in your life. Do you remember that? Like, don't give up, keep going. Instead of what happens is when we come in on a Sunday morning many times or on a Wednesday night or whenever the day might be, maybe it's a fellowship at somebody's house, we walk in, we're beat up, we've taken some pot shots over the week, we've been bruised, we've been discouraged, and as we walk in, we're like, man, and we forget that God's in control. And so we get around our Christian brothers and sisters, and next thing you know, they're telling a story about what God did in their life that week, and it goes, oh man, the light bulb comes on, and we're like, oh, I was placing my hope in that situation. I need to get my eyes off of that and onto the the face of Jesus. And so that's our job for one another. We can bear with one another. We can encourage one another. But he says, here's the problem. We walk with the Lord. He does some pretty great stuff in our lives, and we start to get puffed up in pride. We think, man, I did that all by myself. I did it. It's like when Lucy and I do something out in the yard, and she's helping me pick up sticks, usually you know, scattering them, not picking them up. But when we're done, she looks at me and she says this, we did it. Now, did we do it? Yes. Did I have to work extra hard to make sure that it actually got done? Yes. And that's how God is with us. We think that we're doing something, but most of the time we're actually making it more difficult on the Lord than if he just did it himself. But he loves that interaction. He's not despising that. He's willing. He wants us to be involved, even if it makes more messes, because it makes him even greater in the eyes of those that don't know him. Man, if God can use that guy, wow. Not, hey, that guy's great. And he goes, yeah, I am pretty good. No, he's supposed to deflect. We're supposed to deflect the glory that people ascribe to us, to the one who's actually doing it. And if we'll do that, guess what happens? He gets the glory and he deserves it. And then we don't get puffed up because we recognize I'm just a doorkeeper. I'm just the one that picks up sticks, kind of. And God gives me the power to pick up even the ones that I do. And so Paul's writing to them saying, be careful because if you start to get conceited, you'll start to think of yourself too highly. And he actually says that in verse, um, but then he goes on in verse 16. He says, I say then, so you don't devour one another. So you don't tear one another down. So you don't destroy one another. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lust doesn't have to do with sexual things. Lusting can be for for anything. It can be for power. It can be for money, for prestige. It can be for anything that is not necessarily bad, but when it becomes the object of our hope, it's a bad thing. And it can cause us to devour one another in order to get it. Maybe there was some of that this week. I don't know. I hope not. But I remember watching the, the candidates go for at, at Farmington, where I went to school. You'd have the homecoming queen, and there'd be these little spats going on in the background. And things would get pretty nasty between people that like this candidate and people that like this candidate. Maybe the presidential election. That's happened, right? Biting and devouring one another. I, I, just a thought. I'm not endorsing either candidate. But what do you think other nations think when they watch the debates? What do you think they they think about our country? Not so much about the personalities. But wasn't there someone that said, divided we, we fall? United we stand, divided we fall? That a country divided against itself cannot stand? 
what do you think is happening on the Al Jazeera networks where they're watching our debates? They're going, wow, they are primed for the pickings. They, they don't even like each other. They're not going to fight together. But before we go all political on that, let's bring that here to the body of Christ. Let's bring that to First Baptist down the street and Assembly of God down the street and Meadow Heights and you name it. The churches you can think of around here. How do you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have something that makes you think more highly of yourselves than them? Does it cause you to bite and devour one another? Maybe we don't have the problem within our own walls, but what about between other churches? The beauty of the body of Christ is that it's universal. And those who trust in the blood of Jesus for their salvation, there's this big building that is way bigger than you and I. And when we see the hands and the feet and how God uses different groups, I was thinking about you know, how God can invest in one person in a completely different state and then they'd be brought to your state and you get to be a part of that. And it's very easy to go, man, I got to be a part of that. And then you got to step back and go, wow, God was already working before I even knew that guy. You know, it's, it's all a part of his plan. But when we start get, to get in our own camps and compare ourselves with each other, we, instead of being a blessing and building up one another, we end up devouring one another. And, and we miss the point completely that God is the one who is all and in all. He's the Lord over all. He's the one orchestrating it all. And he wants us to get over ourselves. So in chapter 5, verse 24, after he talks about, in the verse 19 through 23, he talks about walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. He talks about the fruit of walking in the flesh and the fruit of walking in the Spirit. And he says, inspect your fruit, look at it, see what's pouring out of your life, and don't give excuse for it, but go, hey, if this is the fruit that's coming from my life, what does the Bible say that I'm trusting in? Inspect that repent, move on, ask God to change it. But then when he does, after he gives us the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh, he goes on to verse 24 and he says this, All those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The problem is, is that our flesh tends to want to rise up again. We nail it to the cross and it tries to pull off the cross. But Paul would say in other writings as well, he says, I've I, I don't consider myself to be alive anymore, but it's Christ who lives in me. The flesh is gone. It's been put to death. And then he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In other words, be led by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Let's stop and pray for that ambulance. Father, we thank you so much that we're right by the highway here and we can intercede on behalf of whatever's going on outside, I, I do pray as we live on lots of dangerous roads. We have people driving around. Um, there's no shoulder. Um, Father, please use the EMS, use the ambulance, um, use all those involved, the helicopter if need be, to get whoever's hurt to safety. I pray that you would cover the situation with your love, that you'd even use believers that work in the EMS to have wisdom in the middle of the situation. And Father, we pray for physical healing. We also pray that those involved would come to know Jesus as their Savior. In Jesus' name. So as he talks about this, he says, let's not become conceited. And I, I, last week I kind of fumbled over what I thought conceited meant. So I was like, I really need to look this up. Conceited means to be excessively proud of oneself. 
excessively proud. I, guilty. I, I, you know, I don't ever say, hey, I'm really proud of myself. But I, there are times where by my actions, people are like, wow, he really likes himself. You know. <laughs> I wasn't looking <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. But, but what, what happens when people become conceited? What happens? In James chapter 3, around verse 16, what basically James writes is that pride promotes strife. And strife is basically warring against one another, rubbing each other the wrong way for all the wrong reasons. If two people live next to one another and one thinks more highly of the other themselves than they do the other, they don't love their neighbor like themselves. They love themselves way more than they love their neighbor, and they will do anything if that neighbor gets in the way of them being able to love themselves. And so in the body of Christ, it's the same way. We've got a lot of neighbors. If we love ourselves too much, we won't care about them. He says, beware, be careful. He says, let us not become excessively proud of ourselves. He says, but when you do that, you'll be provoking one another and you'll be envying one another and then there will be disunity and divided we fall. So finally to chapter 6, verse 1. He talks about this. He says, brethren, in light of what we just read, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Overtaken gives the idea of not somebody that's purposely gone out to sin, but somebody that has been caught off guard. We're in a battle as Christians. So if we are living our lives to please the Lord, and we don't have our guard on, we don't go Ephesians 6 and put on the spiritual armor, and we're off guard, we're we're considering ourselves off-duty, we can get hit by a pot shot. You stick your head out of, a, out of a bunker and you don't have your helmet on. What happens? You get nailed and you're done. He says, if your brethren have been caught and been overtaken in any sin, that's what a trespass is, you who are spiritual, don't point at them and say, look what they did. I've never done that. Or I'm better than them because when I did that, I, it, it becomes a comparison battle. He says, instead, you who are spiritual, if you're really spiritual, he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore there means to set a broken bone. If you break a bone and you go to the doctor and he sets it, but he's not gentle about it, that doesn't help anything. That hurts. And it doesn't like make you feel all lovey-dovey afterwards. Now, setting a broken bone always hurts. But man, when you've got a doctor that's gentle about it and meek and humble, you want to go back to that doctor because he, he cares about you. And in the same way, if you will be a spiritual person and you'll restore someone, you'll set their, their brokenness, their sinfulness, you'll approach them with humility and meekness, and you set that bone, you know what they want more of? What you got? They want gentleness. They want to be able to do that for someone else because they know how needed it is. They didn't the moment before they sinned. Maybe they were even in pride. But man, pride really breaks down a man. Pride really brings you back. It deflates the puffed upness. You know, it brings us back to level one. And sometimes the Lord allows us to get exactly what we want. He says, restore. He says, restore gently. I read this in, uh, in one guy. He said, the legalist is always harder on others than he is on himself. He's always harder on 
others than he is on himself. But the Spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others that he might be able to help others. He's rough on himself, but he doesn't, he's not rough on other people. He want, and he does it not to prove himself or to show off. He does it so that he will be prepared in the day of adversity to help others. Others-centered. Legalists exploit others, and the Spirit-led believer seeks restoration. Think about it. John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple. The Pharisees and the scribes, what do they do? They find a lady who was caught in the middle of adultery. Now, first of all, how did they know she was in adultery? And second of all, why were they watching? But they find this woman. She's in the act of adultery. She doesn't bring the husband. Odd. Or the, the, the man, not the husband, obviously. Otherwise, it's not adultery. But she bring, they bring the woman to, to Jesus in order to trap him. And they say, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus kneels down. He writes on the ground. And then he steps back up. And a couple of them leave. And he kneels down. He steps on the ground. He writes. We don't know what he writes. I don't think that matters. All I know is what matters is that each one of those men who had condemned her to death, they said, basically, kill her. We need to kill her. She's an adulteress. We need to kill her. And what did Jesus do? Did he seek to point out her fault? Or did he seek to restore her? Jesus didn't come for those who think they are well. He came for sinners. He came for sick people. Perhaps she knew the law, and yet she wasn't doing it. She had gotten into a lifestyle of sin. Perhaps she was selling herself. We don't know if she was a prostitute or if she just was lonely and she was tempted and she had the wrong desire and and so she did everything she could to be fulfilled. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus approached her. He didn't say, you're condemned to death. He wasn't overlooking the law. He knew what the law said. The law did say that. If you're caught in adultery, we take you out to the town square with the man you were committing adultery with. We stone you to death. We plant a tree and curse it as any man who hangs on a tree. There's the death penalty. Purging the sin out of the nation that was called to be set apart for God's use. There could be no sin in there. But Jesus approaches it and he says, look, he starts writing down whatever he does, and then he looks up, and all of the accusers are gone. And he looks at the woman, and he says, where are your accusers? She said, they've all left. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. Don't sin anymore. Stop this. This is hurting you. It's hurting those you're sinning with. Go your way. So he doesn't overlook it. He forgives her sin. To set the broken bone. Because when broken bones are in the body of Christ, when people are caught up in sin, it's not like no one else is affected. If a body has, if one body, singular, with four, you know, two arms and two legs and one head and two ears, if, if I've got a broken bone in my body, my whole body limps. It all hurts. It all has to make up for that brokenness. And in the body of Christ, it's no different. We all are a joint. We're all a ligament. If we are broken, if we're stuck in sin, the body of Christ all limps. We all suffer. So, verse 2, he says, uh, after saying, Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, conceited in other words, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You're only deceiving yourself and you're hurting other people by not restoring them. Interesting enough, Lucy and I were playing on the bed the other day and she likes to get up on our bed because that's a treat and then she likes to jump around and, and I always tell her to not jump and she'll lay there and well, we were laying there long enough that I got a little sleepy and I started rolling around. I was like, okay, I need a nap. So as I'm laying on the bed, I start to act like I'm falling off the bed. And Lucy notices this. And she's like, no, you're going to fall. Because we're always telling her, don't fall. And she's like, no, you're going to fall. And I go, well, help me. And so she grabs my arm and she starts pulling. And she's pulling like kids pull, like without restraint. I'm pulling as hard as I can. Well, as she's pulling me, she gets close to the other edge, right? On the other side of the bed. And so often we do that. We try to help somebody else keep from sin. We start yanking on them so hard that we end up pulling ourselves into a different sin, thinking pretty highly of ourselves. And so we always need to trust Jesus to be the one to help us to pull anyone out of a situation. He says, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Don't think so highly of yourselves. That seems to be the theme. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word there for burden is a, a very heavy burden, a weight, something that we can't bear on our own. What did the legalists do? Did they help people bear their burdens? No. Actually, what it says in Matthew, uh, in Acts chapter 15 or 16, it says that the Pharisees were actually loading a, bear, a burden onto the believers that they themselves weren't bearing. They wouldn't release people's burdens. They put more on them. They said, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this to be acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. They're like, look, I couldn't do the first 10 commandments to start with. Now I got all these other ones you've made up. I can't ride on an elevator on the Sabbath. That's one of those in Jerusalem right, right, right now. On the Sabbath, you can't go anywhere. You can't even ride the elevator because that would be considered work. Right? Legalism. It just... There's never ending to the rules. And so he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who bore our sins on the cross? Let's keep it simple, right? What was our burden? We had a shame and guilt we couldn't deal with. We couldn't sprinkle enough blood on the altar to be forgiven. We could only have it covered for a time period until we had to do it again. And Jesus said, I will bear your sins on my shoulders I will take the weight of it, the guilt, the shame. I took, he took it to the cross. And now we don't have to bear it anymore. We've been forgiven, set free. No more carrying that stuff around. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Instead of focusing on everyone else, like siblings tend to do, you know, Lucy one day is going to go, well, Judah's not doing this. She already does that right? And the body of Christ, we do that. We go, well, so-and-so is not as good off as I am, or they're not doing this as I am. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And then he says something odd that seems to contradict verse 2. He says, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, wait a minute. He said, bear one another's burdens, but each one shall bear his own load. Is he contradicting himself? Has he got double talk going on here? Well, in verse 2, he says, 
He says, bear one another's burdens. And that word in the Greek means a heavy burden. The weight, the sin, the guilt. But then in verse 5, he says, each one shall bear his own load. And the idea is when you're in the infantry, each one carries his own gear, right? He's got a backpack, straps that thing on. It's got his personal gear. It's got maybe some crew gear, but each one has their own responsibility. So if my car breaks down, I'm jumping analogies. If my car breaks down and my wife needs to take the kids to the doctor and both of our cars are broken down and I need some help, someone can come and help me, right? They can bring their car if we ask them and take us to the doctor so we can take our kids to the doctor. But as a husband and as a father, do they, if I don't feel like raising my children and disciplining them and teaching them to live, does that mean that I can just give it to somebody else? No, that's my own burden. There's a difference between a group burden and an individual burden, you know. And so we need to be careful that we're not just shirking our responsibilities. He's not saying bear the burden of every individual's individual responsibilities. He's saying bear the burdens that you can help people bear that are not personal ones. And then when there's a personal one, encourage them so that they can bear up under that burden. You know, raising kids is really stinking hard. It is. It's difficult. It takes people constantly investing in us and pouring wisdom into us and encouraging us and giving us ideas. And, you know, and, and if it wasn't for the body of Christ, Kelly and I would be floundering in the water. We, we never raised no kids before. And obviously nobody gets to start with a, a manual that says, here's how to raise kids or with any experience. But the idea is the body of Christ is meant to fulfill that, to meet those, those lack of knowledge. He says, each one shall bear his own load. Each person shall be responsible for what God's given him to be responsible over. So let's move on to verse 6. We've talked about needs and how we're to deal with them in the body of Christ. We meet each other's needs. But then there's also seeds. We have things that we need. We have things that we've been given that we can offer. Sharing. In Acts chapter 2, it's interesting the way the beginning church started. In Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 41, I think I'm in the right spot. In verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, it says, With many words Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And as, at, when the church began, this is what they did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had a need. So they were meeting one another's needs. But in order for needs to be met, there also has to be seeds. There has to be people that have more than they need to be able to provide for those that don't have all that they need, right? And so that's how the body of Christ works. So in these last five verses, he says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that's why I called it seeds, 
Whatever he sows, that he also will reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so there's this idea of, there's laws of sowing and reaping, and if you've farmed it all in your life, you know this. Now I'm going to list them, there's three. You reap later. You take seed, you sow it on a field, there's not instant anything. There's waiting. And a good farmer has to wait in order to produce crops that give him anything. So you reap later. You reap more than you sow. If you take seed and you send it out in the field, it grows up more seed than you started with, right? Otherwise, why would you do it? It multiplies. There's a multiplication depending on what you sow and where you sow it. And then you reap after the kind you sow. So you don't take apple seeds and throw them out in the field and grow orange trees. You don't take wheat and throw it out in the field and grow grass. You grow wheat. You don't grow straw. So the idea is you reap later. You reap more than you sow. And you reap after the kind you sow. Now it's important what we sow, but the soil is important as well. So he says there in verse 8... He says, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. So if you're constantly pouring your resources into fleshly pursuits and desires, you're going to reap corruptible things, right? If I buy an old 56 Chevy and it's all restored, they've buffed all the rust out of it. They've dealt with all the corruption. That's what corruption is. It's rust. That's the idea. And you set it out in your garage If you don't take care of it, even if you do take care of it, what starts to bubble up again? The rust. It's trying to return to what it was. There's corruption in it. He says if you... Now, there's nothing wrong with buying a 56 pickup truck. What I'm saying, though, is wherever you pour your resources, you will reap later. You'll reap more than you sow, and you'll reap after the kind you sow. So in this context, he says, let him who is taught, verse 6... The word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, in this case, he's talking about physical, financial blessings. Now, I'm not saying that you need to like make sure that I'm provided for. But what the Bible teaches, and Paul wrote this while he was working day and night, providing for his own needs so he wouldn't stumble the church he worked for, where he taught the word. But he was teaching that there's a principle of sowing and reaping in the body of Christ. If you have what you need and God's provided for you, then you need to provide for others. And in this case, he's talking about the one who's been given the gift to teach and to administer. You need to make sure you provide for his needs. But then he says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. So he's talking about whatever you sow, wherever you sow, you're going to reap. If you're constantly pouring your resources into fleshly pursuits, you'll reap of the flesh. You'll have fruit from that, but it's corruptible. It won't, it's temporary. And if you are constantly sowing towards things that are um, of the Spirit, you will reap spiritual blessings. You'll reap everlasting life. You'll reap fruit that will last forever. It won't be temporary. And I, I thought it was interesting to think about this because... You know, what does Jesus say? He says, um, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. They're temporary. Things like 
When you're going for things like accolades or man's opinion or position or applause or even for material blessings, they're not necessarily bad things. What he's saying is if that's the only thing you sow towards, then when you get done with life, all you'll have is a bucket of rust. You won't have anything else. It's, it's not going to last. You used to hear people say all the time, it's all going to burn anyway, you know, and it will. That doesn't mean we can't take care of things. But what he's saying is if you'll sow to the Spirit, you'll reap things that are not temporary, where moth and rust cannot destroy. Think about it. You put clothes in the closet and you leave them there. Bugs get in there. They tear them up. They dry rot. There's all these problems. Cars are the same way. They rust. I was looking at the frame on my Jeep the other day, and I'm like, man, it's starting to rust. What am I going to do? I've got to start doing something, sanding it and painting it again. But it's still going to try and rust one day. So he says, whatever you sow towards, that's what you're going to reap. Temporary, you're going to reap temporary. Eternal, you'll reap eternal. Now, what is the one thing, the treasure, that we can lay up? People always say, we can't take it with you. But there is something that we can take with us to heaven. What is it? Does it fit in a trailer? Does it fit in a briefcase? No. The the only thing that we can take with us that's eternal is human souls. Human souls. Priceless. And I say that because most of my time goes to keeping up things that will rust. Not because I worship them, but it's what I'm always excited about. And just this last week, God's given me a glimpse of what will happen if I'll just lay those things down a little bit more than I typically do. Gave me lots of opportunities to make relationships, to meet with people, to talk about things, to work through issues. And I tell you what, I had a lot of joy. I was exhausted. I, was, I wouldn't say I was burnt out, but I was dunsies. You know, I was, I was pretty worn out. But man, I had all kinds of joy this week. Just hearing stories about how God's working in people's lives. And, uh, and it's interesting because we've been down here for three years, and I've been praying for that. Um, just a couple of years, just uh, about six months ago, a buddy of mine, his name's Doug, he lives in Farmington. I went to high school with him, and then we went to Mac for a few years, and then we kind of split ways and never really got in contact. I was bad about calling. He was bad about answering. And, and we just had all the typical, don't see the guy anymore stuff. But what was really cool is that I invited him to church eight years ago. I said, dude, this thing changed my life. You're getting ready to get married. This is the foundation you need. You know, I said, both of your sides of the family have been divorced. And like, there's all kinds of brokenness. And you don't have any wisdom to go off of. Like, this is what you need. He's like, yeah, I think I'll go check that out. You know, like people will say. And then he never came. We moved down here about two and a half years in. He starts going to the church I used to go to. I'm like, oh, I could have hung out. But the beauty of it is, is that I prayed for him. And what does he say? He says, uh, <clears throat> verse 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap. There's going to be a harvest, and we'll reap in time if we do not lose heart. I think God's grace poured over on that one because I had lost heart. I stopped praying, but there was other people praying for him. Next thing you know, my pastor's got a second grade kid on his soccer team. They get to talking, and life's chewed up Doug and spit him out. 
And he'll tell you that. I'm not telling you anything he isn't. There's a video on YouTube where he shares his testimony. But what I'm saying is that life had chewed him up and spit him out. So he went looking for something that would help. And he found Jesus. Now, was I the one that convinced him? No. Was Pastor Mike the one that convinced him? No. The Lord finally just broke him down enough to where he was willing to say, I need help. And so he says, we will reap in due season. We shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, verse 10, when we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, he says, do good especially to those that are in the family. We're in the family. It's like the Godfather. You, you take care of family. But he's not saying that. It's the body of Christ. We get to love one another. We get to serve one another. And I tell you what, when you serve people, you may not get anything in return financially or anything like that, but you'll have joy because you'll get to be a part of their story. How God's moving in their life. And then one day, they're going to come along and they're going to be the one bearing with you, dealing with your burden. And it's a beautiful thing because there's, there's joy and uh, when we have the opportunity, it's God-given opportunity. He says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he says, don't grow weary. The harvest is coming if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. So don't give up. He says, do good to all. Question is, when? When we're given the opportunity. Pray for those opportunities. They're coming. God's given them to you. Maybe you don't see them. Pray about them. You'll see them. You'll be exhausted. You'll have joy. To who? Who are we supposed to do good to? He says, all. I looked up the Greek word. No, I didn't. But I know this word means all. Do good to all. Did Jesus say, love your friends only? He said, no. He said, love your enemies. Everybody loves their friends. That's not any different than the rest of the world. Even Gentiles and tax collectors do that. He says, love all. To the household of faith especially, and especially to those who don't know Jesus. Turn with me one last reference to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. Promise I'm done. Matthew 9 verse 35. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, every disease among the people. He was binding up the broken. He was setting broken legs. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary, and they were scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Do you see lost people as people that deserve it, or do you see them like scattered sheep that are lost and they don't know where to go? The legalist says they deserve it. That's what they deserve. It's karma. It's not the idea. Karma is not in Christianity. Karma says you lived bad, you deserve bad. Jesus says you sinned against me. I love you anyway. I'll die in your place. Here's new life. It's grace, the free gift of God. Can't deserve it, can't earn it, don't expect it. And then God gives it anyway. So what he says is, I see all these people. I have compassion for them. Compassion is when our hearts are moved to the point that we want to do something. 
Men, I'm speaking to men because most of you are men in here. When your wife is moved to tears over something, that's the Lord moving you. When my wife is sensitive about something, she's broken over an individual, it causes me to perk my ears up because I don't have too much sensitivity. But God's given me a wife to do that. And so, if you have a wife, depend upon that. Listen to that. Be sensitive to it. Don't be oversensitive to everyone else. Be sensitive to your wife. Guys that don't have wives, pray for wives that are sensitive to the Spirit. Because when they are sensitive to the Spirit and not for selfish gain, guess what? You can have a godly wife that's going to be ears for you. God's going to use her. But then he says this. He said to his disciples, he says, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. People are already prime pickings for the gospel. The problem is there's not enough laborers. So the question becomes, are we inward focused or are we outward focused, looking for who God is trying to show mercy to? God's planting those people in your lives. He wants you to sow seed. He wants to sow seed to the Spirit. And as you will, over time, there's going to be a harvest. But he needs laborers to go out and harvest. So let's pray to the Lord of the harvest. Father, we, um, <clears throat> we thank you so much for the words of Paul, for his correction, but also for his instruction. Okay, we know what not to do now. Tell us what we should be doing. Lord, help us not to think so highly of ourselves and help us to see those around us who need you. Help us to build one another up in the body of Christ at home and in the church and help us to build one another up as we go out to scatter seed on those who are lost. Father, raise up a harvest. Help us to be ready to harvest. Help us to be willing to get our hands dirty, to meet with those who are sick sinners. And Father, help us never to forget that we were once sick sinners in the same need. We were broken, we were lost, we were scattered, and you sent your laborers to come and to set our broken bones and to build us up again and to share with us the hope of the gospel. Lord, help us to do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.